If you have a Bible, open it up to Psalm chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning as we continue in our study of the Psalms, Psalm chapter 2. And as you're getting over there, I want you just to think for a minute about that friend that you have, and I'm guessing you have one, friend or family member that you have who loves to stir up political debate on Facebook. All right, fix that person in your mind. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's somebody that you work with, maybe it's a neighbor. Who is it? Maybe it's you. Maybe you're the one, you wake up in the morning and you sit down at that computer and you say, I'm going to start some problems, right? That's what you're going to do with your day. But lock that person in your head and then imagine over the course of the last, say, year, how many of those debates have ended with name-calling or anger or frustration. Uh, if I'm, if I'm going to take a guess, I would guess the percentage is roughly 100% of those online debates about politics have ended in anger and frustration and bitterness and the loss of friendships. As I thought about that this week, I was trying to think about why is it that we react so viscerally and emotionally to political debates? Why is it that we respond that way when somebody says they're going to vote for a different person than you're going to vote for? Why does that make us so angry and upset? And here's, here's the best I could come up with. This is my theory. I think we respond in ways that are fearful and angry because uh, we recognize when we're talking about politics and we're talking about world events, we recognize that we're talking about stuff that is outside of our control. Right? The world is really big. There are threats from outside our country. There are threats inside our country. Sometimes maybe we worry about uh, threats to the economy. We even maybe look at our neighbors and and wonder, can I trust them? And none of it is controllable to us. And so the only thing we know how to do in those moments of fear and anger at times is to insult someone's ancestry, to resort, resort to names. And so... All too often, what we do in response to those types of debates is one of two things. Either we avoid, we say, you know what, I am just going to not engage this discussion at all. I don't want to talk about world events. I don't want to talk about politics. I don't want to talk about any of that. That's one response. The other response is we attack, right? We either avoid or attack. Here's what I want to ask this morning. What if there was another option for how we could respond in those moments when somebody raises questions about politics, about world events, about the fear and feeling of being out of control that that evokes in all of us. What if we could respond in a way that actually reflects the truthfulness and yet the mercy and kindness of Jesus Christ? What if we could respond in a different way? As we look at Psalm chapter 2 this morning, I think Psalm 2 gives us a sort of template for how, can, how we can respond in a way that honors God in the midst of these debates. Psalm chapter 2 paints the big picture for us about what God is doing in the world. What I love about Psalm 2 is it, it paints this picture. It says this, that essentially, yeah, it's true, that there are events outside of our control going on in the world. There are nations and kings and leaders who are opposed to God. There are people in the world that want to see God's people destroyed. That is real. 
And yet, Psalm 2 will also say this, God sits on his throne, absolutely unafraid, absolutely in control. Not only is he absolutely in control, but he sits with his arms outstretched and he says to every rebel, I'm offering an opportunity for life, for blessing, if you'll bow to my king. So the message of Psalm chapter 2 is that in those moments when we face the reality that the world is outside of our control, we can inject the hope that although we are out of control, God is in control. And although the world is rebellious, God has a plan both to judge the rebel but also to offer life to the rebel who submits. That's the message of Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2, you should know, was one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Maybe the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The early church came back to Psalm 2 over and over and over again. And the reason is because they understood that Psalm 2 wasn't only about all of the enemies of Israel. It wasn't only about the ancient people of God, but that Psalm 2 also applies to the present people of God. So in the face of persecution, the early church would recite Psalm 2. When they faced persecution from Herod or the Roman Empire, they would come back to Psalm 2 and remind themselves and one another that God is in control. And not only is God in control, but he is extending the offer of life to everybody who will trust in Jesus. They saw Psalm 2 as a prophecy of Jesus Christ himself. So that when they found themselves in these situations of chaos, they'd say, we have a God who is on his throne. We have a God who will crush rebellion and yet offer life at the same time. So we're going to look this morning at Psalm chapter 2. Follow with me. We're going to start in Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. There are four movements in Psalm chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. First thing we see is this, that there are rebels who oppose God. Now, Psalm 2 was almost certainly used at the coronation of a new king of Israel. And every time a new king would be placed on the throne, they they might recite this psalm and say, okay, why is it that all of the nations surrounding Israel are against us? Think for a minute about the history of Israel. How many nations aligned themselves against God's people? The Egyptians, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Romans. I mean, the history of the Bible is the history of nation after nation after nation opposing God, right? Because God had placed the people of Israel on this land right in the middle of the ancient world. And here's what God had essentially said to them. He said, I am giving you a way to know me and a way to reflect me in the world. So the people would follow the law, not just so they had something to do, 
but so that in doing so, they would reflect the character of God, right? And as Israel prospered in relationship with God, all the nations around them who worshiped idols began to attack. All the nations around them who were jealous of God's blessing on his people began to align against them. And so the Israelites were persecuted, harassed, attacked, dragged into slavery. The history of the Israelite people is one of oppression by foreign nations, right? So as a king was crowned, they would read this psalm, why are the nations in an uproar and all the peoples devising a vain thing, right? And this picture is all the kings and nations of the earth, they look at God's plan and they say, to us, God feels like a taskmaster, like a slave driver who has constrained us, and we want to throw off his shackles and live our own way, right? So the rebels oppose God. Nation after nation throughout history has tried to set up their kingdom in opposition to God's kingdom. It's interesting, uh, when we were in Greece a few weeks ago, a portion of our group, a group of us, went over and visited ancient Corinth, a couple of hours away from Athens. And it's a fantastic site. You can see the ruins of ancient Corinth, you know, going all the way back to like the 6th century BC and all the way forward through the Greek era and the Roman era and all, uh, even the Byzantine era, and all of these ruins for well over a thousand years. Well, while we were there, there's also a museum on the site that houses a number of statues and artifacts that they've recovered from the dig on ancient Corinth. And as we were walking through the museum, one particular statue stood out to me. Uh, It was this one. Now, most of you won't recognize this guy. I don't think you can read it from where you're sitting. This is the Emperor Nero. This is the Roman Emperor Nero. Uh, The little inscription says that this statue probably dates from around A.D. 60. Okay, so this statue was almost certainly in Corinth when the Apostle Paul himself went to Corinth to preach. And I paused at this statue and I thought, you know, I've not seen a whole lot of images of Nero. You look at it at first glance and you think, relatively ordinary looking guy, right? John Lennon haircut, kind of floppy ears. He doesn't look that threatening. But if you know the history of Nero, you know that Nero as the leader of the Roman Empire, was a vicious persecutor of God's people. Uh, Nero is probably the one who had the Apostle Paul executed. Contemporary accounts about Nero actually say that he would use Christians as torches at his garden parties. That was his idea of fun. He would light up the Christians and let them glow while people drank their wine and ate their dinners. The history of the world is the history of nations that rise up and say, we're going to destroy God's people because we hate God. The Roman Empire was no different. Our time is no different. You don't have to look around for very long to begin to understand that there are nations and leaders in this world who hate God and hate God's people. As you look throughout uh, our world today, there are dozens of nations where Christians are fearful for their lives. If you've read the news in the last five years, you have no doubt read about ISIS, 
the Islamic State, this terrorist group who has made it their mission to install Islamic rule throughout the world, right? And not only do they kill other Muslims, but they kill Christians in droves. Just this year alone, since January, I read earlier this week, just this year alone, they've launched at least 18 attacks in countries ranging all the way from Australia to Egypt to Iran to the United Kingdom. Just in those attacks, they've killed almost 700 people. That doesn't even count the people who have died in armed conflicts in Muslim countries or through executions, individual executions. All in all, this organization is probably responsible for tens of thousands of deaths. All right, so what happens when we see that in the news? Well, we have a tendency to panic, don't we? We read that and we go, what are we going to do? Which presidential candidate is going to fix this? And if you followed the news last year in the run-up to the presidential election, that was a huge source of debate, wasn't it? How are we going to secure our borders so these people don't get in here and do to us what they've done through the rest of the world? And so we live in fear and anxiety, and that fear and anxiety leads us to anger. And in fact, in many cases, we believe that the enemy is actually our Facebook friends because we live in anxiety and fear, right? We see that and we panic. But that's the history of the world. Nation after nation after nation that says, I hate God's people and I want to establish my own rule. But as we continue in Psalm 2, the psalmist says, here's why we don't have to live in fear. Here's why in those moments when those conversations emerge, we don't have to bring more anger and anxiety. Look at this, Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm 2 goes on to say this, God laughs at rebels. God laughs at rebels. I love the imagery because all of the nations of the world are gathered together and they're conspiring and they've got a plan and they say, we're going to win. We're going to throw off the shackles of God's oppressive reign over the universe. And it says God sits there up in the heavens and he, he laughs. There are two instances in the Psalms where we see God laugh. One is here, one is in Psalm chapter 37, and the context is the same, that there's a group of people who get together and say, we're going to beat God, and God starts to laugh. I had a friend who gave a sermon on this passage not long ago, I was listening to it this week, and he said, this is like if you were attacked by a baby. You might laugh, right? That, that baby's angry and rebellious, and so that's not good, but it's kind of funny that the baby thinks he'll win. Not too long ago, one of our children, I won't name which one, but it could have been any one of them, it could have been any of your children as well, one of our children at the dinner table one night decided that they would not eat the chicken that was placed in front of them for dinner, not a bite. And we said, child, you you must at least try the meal and eat a few bites. And this particular child said, I will not do it. 
And so my wife said, if you don't eat it now, you will see it at breakfast. And if you don't eat it at breakfast, you will see it at snack time. And then at lunchtime. And then at dinner tomorrow. And everybody else will eat other food. But that chicken will haunt your dreams if you don't eat it now. And later on in the evening, after Shannon had kind of gone into another room, I pulled the child aside and I said, you know you will lose. You recognize that you will lose. And this particular kid said, no, I'm not going to eat it. And I said, I promise you, you will see it again and again. And the child said, I will see it again until I die. Right? And, and the kid's idea was death before submission. I will go to my grave before I eat this chicken. And I said, you, you won't. I promise you won't. You will eat it. Right? And, and, I, and I walked away and I thought, it, it's sad that the child is in rebellion, but it is kind of funny that the kid thinks they can win. Said child ate the chicken by 10 o'clock the next morning, FYI. Right, and that's what we see in Psalm chapter 2. All of these nations gather together and they say, we will throw off the chains of God's reign. And God sits in the heavens on his throne, presiding over the universe that he created. And says, you must be joking. That's a joke, right? And he begins to laugh. See, from our perspective, we live in all of this angst and uncertainty, and fear. And so we lash out when we can't control the global circumstances that we face. And we believe, if I can just convince you to see things my way, then we can fix all of this. And we create another version of our own little kingdoms, don't we? We can rule the world. We're smart enough We're good enough. We get the right guy sitting in that Oval Office. We get rid of the wrong people around the world. We pass the right laws. We are smart enough and good enough, and we can make this happen. Let's build our kingdom and defeat that kingdom. And I think very similarly, God sits in the heavens and he laughs. He says, who's in control? It's not you. There's only one king of the universe. It's not me, and it's not you. God sits in the heavens and laughs, and he says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. As you look throughout history, it's really interesting to read the scripture and see the string of nations that opposed God's people that no longer exist If you read throughout the history of Israel, for example, in the book of Isaiah, you see the Assyrians under Sennacherib gather around and they besiege Jerusalem and King Hezekiah and the Assyrians were this great empire. And all of Jerusalem was afraid. And yet God told Hezekiah, I'll deliver you. And the angel of the Lord went and killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And Sennacherib went home. 
Sennacherib wrote his own little account, actually, of that battle that you can read today, but he doesn't mention that he lost badly. As you continue in the Scripture, you see Babylon, the great empire in the book of Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar, this leader who was so proud, he built a 90-foot-high statue of himself and said, everybody bow down before my statue. Daniel chapter 4, you see Nebuchadnezzar walking around on his palace and he looks out at his kingdom and he begins to muse on how great his kingdom is and how great he is. And he's thinking, I am equal to God. And God appeared to Nebuchadnezzar and says, you will for seven years crawl around like an animal and eat grass. And this great leader is humbled to living in the forest and eating more organically than any of us ever have. In the book of Acts, Herod Agrippa, this vicious leader of Jerusalem, stands up to make a speech And all of the people begin to say, the voice of a God and not a man. And Agrippa is eaten by worms and he dies. Over and over and over again, God communicates that he will not allow any rebellion to succeed against his kingdom. This, by the way, is why eschatology, the study of end times, this is why it matters. Because sometimes when we talk about end times and people start making charts and graphs and all of these things, it's easy to go, why does this matter? Right? When I can't get my kids to eat the chicken, why do I care about the pre-tribulational rapture of the saints? Here's why end times matters, because knowing the end of the story dramatically impacts how I perceive this moment. If I know that I'm going to graduate summa cum laude, that impacts my level of anxiety today. If I know that God will defeat all of his enemies and establish his kingdom, if I know that in the long run, Not even ISIS can defeat the plans of God and Jesus Christ. Does that affect how I engage with my friends who see the world differently? I don't have to get angry. I don't have to insist on my own version of some earthly kingdom. I don't have to be afraid. I can have an opinion. But I don't have to allow that opinion to drive me to the extent that it identifies me and controls me because I know the end of the story. God laughs at the rebels. And then as the passage goes on, we see God's king himself begin to speak and say, here's what I'm going to do with the authority God has given me. Look at verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Uh, This imagery of God's king as the son goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you remember the covenant that God made to King David. 
God said, David, your descendant, your son will come after you and your descendants, David, will always have the right to reign over God's kingdom in Jerusalem. So God gives this covenant to David and he says, your descendant, I will call him a son. He will be a son to me and I will be a father to him. And ultimately, this Davidic covenant, as it's called, predicts the coming of Jesus. Because in Jesus Christ, the early church recognizes that what Psalm 2 is talking about and what 2 Samuel is talking about is not only is Jesus Christ the Son in the sense that he's God's King, he is actually the Son of God, fully human and fully divine. And so one of the reasons they came back to Psalm 2 was to say Psalm 2 is talking about this King, this Son. And, and what you want to envision here as you read verses 7 through 9 is a son saying, look, my dad has given me all the authority over all the nations in the world. I control them. I can do whatever I want. If you have a problem with that, you've got to go to dad. When I was a kid, I'm the middle of three boys. And so obviously my older brother had the privilege earlier than I did of being in charge when mom and dad were gone. I didn't like that. I did not recognize the monarchy of Dan Morton. I didn't agree with it. I thought his goals were wrong. I thought his authority was illegitimate. I knew that but for an accident of birth, I would be at the top. And I wanted badly the kingdom of Matt Morton to eclipse the kingdom of Dan Morton and topple it to the ground and shatter it to pieces. But when Dan was in charge, all he had to do was this. Matt, if you have a problem, let's call mom and dad. I never wanted to call mom and dad because I knew who they'd side with. They had given the authority to Dan. In this passage, God's Messiah says this. You know, you can say what you want. You can build your kingdom. You can conspire all you want, but the Father gave Jesus the authority. He says, look, ask of me and I will give the nations to you. When I was in college, it was very popular to quote this passage in a missions context. There were even songs about it. Ask of me and I will give the nations to you. And we would sing that and we would envision going out into the nations to tell people about Jesus Christ. That's not quite what this is about. Because what does the Messiah do with the nations he inherits who rebel against God? He takes them like a clay pot and he shatters them on the ground. He says, I'll take the nations and I'll smash them if they don't bow down to God's king. Again, the history of the scripture and the history of the world is littered with the carcasses of nations that thought they could overtake God. How many of you in this room have ever met a Hittite? None of you, nobody. A Moabite? Edomite? A Philistine? A Babylonian? an Assyrian, a Roman centurion, none of them. They're all gone. How many of you have met an Israelite? Yeah. History is littered 
with the carcasses of nations that said, we will defeat God and his purposes. And the king says, nope, I have the authority. And the day is coming when every nation that opposes God, every kingdom that opposes God will be smashed to pieces. I wish I had time this morning to read from Revelation chapters 16 and 19. But if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you have no doubt heard, even if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, you've no doubt heard of the Battle of Armageddon. Right? People make movies called Armageddon. There are video games about Armageddon, and we envision Armageddon as this massive battle that draws out for years, and all of this armed conflict, it's sort of become a symbol for this major battle. But as you read the book of Revelation, do you know what actually happens at the battle of Armageddon? Here's what happens. Revelation chapter 16, all the nations of the world gather together on a plain called Har-Megiddo, Armageddon, and they say, we are going to fight one another, right? So they begin to fight one another at Armageddon. But then three chapters later in Revelation 19, Jesus comes down out of heaven. He returns riding on a white horse and he wears a robe dipped in blood and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. And all of the nations fighting one another, they turn and they go, let's not fight each other, let's fight him. And you know what happens in a flash? That sword from Jesus' mouth devours every single one of them. The battle of Armageddon doesn't take that long once Jesus comes back. Jesus says, I win. Battle's over. And so the early church would look back at Psalm 2. When they were facing persecution and global conflict and fear, and they'd say, look what God said about Jesus. Jesus wins. No kingdom, not the Romans, not the Herodian kingdom, not the Greeks, no kingdom defeats God's king. There's only one. And so the king speaks here and he says, every rebel will be destroyed. Now, if the passage ended here, it would be pretty bleak. It'd be pretty bleak because the reality is that uh, the reason nations are rebellious against God is because people are rebellious against God. Nations are just composed of thousands or millions of people like you and me, right? So the reason that nations make laws that are immoral is because the people of the nations are immoral. The reason that nations are violent is because the people in those nations are violent. And what that means is that every single one of us stands in rebellion against God. Every single one of us wants to set up our own little kingdom. Deep in our hearts, that's what we want. We want to be in charge. All right, so if this passage ends with, hey, Jesus is going to smash you all. Right, you'd go home and it wouldn't be a great weekend. That's not where the passage ends. Right, look at verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun, literally kiss the sun that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. 
Last line, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalm ends with a warning and an invitation. Rebels who bow will be saved. Rebels who bow will be saved. The idea is, listen, kings and nations of the world, you are really headed the wrong way here. And there's only one way out. You do a U-turn and you say, you know what, I recognize God's Messiah. I recognize God's King. And every rebel who bows down, the psalmist says, how blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. Kiss the Son. In the ancient world, to kiss a leader was a sign of deference and obedience. You fall on your knees and you say, I recognize that King. One of the things I want us to take away from here, especially as we talk to people in our own spheres of influence about these political issues, these global issues, is this reality that the evil that we see, that we're so afraid of, right? The evil that we're afraid is going to get in here. It's already in here, right? Evil is not just out there. It's in here. And so the reality is that we are all rebels, and every single rebel, just like we see in this passage, every single rebel finds reasons why their rebellion is justified. Every single one of us. You say, well, that's not me. I don't justify my sin. I don't do that. Let me, um, let me offer an illustration about maybe how you do. Imagine that on the way home, you're driving down Texas Avenue, and you are scrupulously going the speed limit, which I know you do. I know all of you do. And yet, as you're driving down Texas Avenue, somebody overtakes you. You're going 40 miles an hour. Somebody overtakes you at 65 miles an hour. And they zip past you. And they're on their phone. And they're driving like this. What do you think? I pray for justice to be served from the hand of God. Don't you? I hope they get pulled over. I hope they get a ticket. They deserve it. They need it. We all need it. We're all going to be safer if that clown will stop and get a ticket. And then you see him, maybe you see him a mile down the road and they have been pulled over and you say, justice has been done. But what happens when you're the one pulled over? I've been pulled over for speeding and um, my first reaction is never that justice has been done. I'm just going to be honest with you. There's always a good reason why I was doing it. Even if externally I say to you, yeah, I was speeding, And I say it to the officer, yeah, I was speeding. Inside, I have a reason, don't I? The best one is everybody was speeding. Look around you. Or maybe I blame forces outside my control. The signs weren't clear. I couldn't see them. There was a tree in front of them. Yeah, I've driven down Texas 572 times this year. I know the speed limits. But today, the signs weren't clear. I had to get somewhere. My daughter had a dance lesson, and I couldn't be late, right? We find ways in our hearts and minds to justify our rebellion because we want our own kingdom, right? And it goes deeper than speeding. All too often we think, you know what, the way that I think about sexual morality, the way that I think about how I use my money, the way that I think about how I use my time, the way that I think about how I treat people at work, all of those 
are justified, even if God's word says, nah, you shouldn't do that. And so we justify our own rebellion. And here's what happens to nations, is they are collections of people who get together and they say, our way is best. So let's throw off God's shackles. And Psalm chapter 2 says, you better turn around. You better submit to the Son. Right? And the good news of Psalm 2 is every rebel who says, I'll trust that king, takes refuge in the shelter of God. Every rebel who bows receives mercy and grace from God. That's the good news. You and I are rebels. And God in Jesus Christ says that Jesus is not only a king who judges. He's a king who bore our judgment. And so when the early church talked about Psalm 2, if you read the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus as the Son of God, and then he goes on to say, but let me tell you what this king did. You were hurtling toward destruction with your fist in the air, and Jesus Christ took your judgment. And he says, every rebel who trusts in the king will be saved. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's actually also why when Paul stood before Herod Agrippa II, not the one who was eaten by worms, but the one who was in an incestuous relationship with his sister, different Herod. When Paul stood before Herod Agrippa II, he began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And Herod, whether in sarcasm or in sincerity, Herod said to him, you know, in a short time, you're going to persuade me to be a Christian. Right, and here is Paul shackled probably at the hands and feet by evil leaders. And he says, King, I wish that everybody could be like I am, except for these chains. Even evil kings can find refuge in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Even you, even me. That's the message of the good news. All right, so I, I want to come back full circle then to what we started with. How does this impact these conversations that we are no doubt having either at the office or on social media or in our spheres of influence when people express this sort of global anxiety? I don't know what to do about the political state, the moral state of our nation and our world. And people begin to fight or people begin to flee. Here's what we do is we inject the hope of the gospel. We acknowledge, yes, the reality. You know what? History is filled with real life, scary illustrations of kingdoms who rise up against God. And they kill God's people sometimes. But you know what? We know the end of the story. We know about a king who is coming. Who will judge rebellious nations. But we also know a king who stands before rebels like you and me, right? The kind of people who create evil nations. 
And he says, all who take refuge in me will be blessed. Life is found in this king. If you want eternal life and peace that can't be taken away, you trust in Jesus. You trust God's king. We don't have to be afraid. We can care. We can have an opinion about politics. We can talk about it. We can think about it. But fundamentally, our hope of life, our hope of eternal peace comes from the reality there's one king. And he's writing a story that we already know the ending to. So Psalm 2 says, all who take refuge in him will find life and eternal blessing. That's how we bring hope in the face of chaos and calm in the face of peace by always going back to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality that we can rest in your sovereignty, that you sit on your throne and you're not worried, you're not concerned that the nations of the world will overthrow you. You are angry, you are sad at the rebellion of humanity and you have compassion for your people and for the world. And so we trust that you're in control, that because of the death and resurrection of Christ, we have a promise that all who trust in him will have eternal life. It can't be taken away. All who trust in him will live in a kingdom that will be forever submissive to you. Father, we want to be a part of that kingdom. We want to invite others to be a part of that kingdom. We don't want to be people who stir up anger and angst and fear. We want to be people who offer life and hope and peace. So we pray that we would. Give us strength through your spirit to do just that in the midst of this broken world. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.